0: Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. This is episode 742, my interview with Tanya Hester. Work is optional. Enjoy the show. (laughs) G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Hidden Why Podcast. Today I'm bringing you my interview with Tanya Hester. Tanya is the author of Work Optional, a book titled Work Optional, Retire Early, The Non-Penny-Pinching Way. So really she's talking in here about how she went from working to finishing her work and retiring basically. And it's not about retiring in the sense of how I'm gonna retire, kick back and do nothing. Well, maybe it is. I mean, you could play golf every day, you could go surfing every day, you could travel the world, do whatever you want. Um, it's up to you how you want that life to look like. But for me, it's really you know, being able to do and use your time how you want to do it. I think that's what it's all about. So what they did, Tanya and her husband, is planned for it. They worked extremely hard in their occupations and they understood financially what it meant to live day by day based on their lifestyle needs and what that would look like going forward as well. At the age of 38, they did that, they made it happen, they retired. Um, It's incredibly inspirational and there's a lot of really cool insights and value in here that I think you can take away and incorporate into your own plan as well if that's what you're um, looking to do. Guys, check it out. Let me know what you think. Uh, Leave your comments at thehiddenwide.com. I've got all the links in there as well to reach out to Tanya and ask her any questions and her book as well. Uh, Guys, I've got a book coming out this year, The Ultimate Life Map. Go to theultimalifemap.com and subscribe there for updates on that. We'll talk at the other end. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Tanya. Welcome to The Hidden Wide Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me.
0: It's so good to have you. I'm excited to have you here. I I love the concept behind your book, Work Optional. I'm uh, really excited to talk about it. But uh, tell us, Tanya, how did you write this book? Like, what, What drove you to write this book?
1: Yeah, so my husband, Mark, and I were fortunate enough to be able to retire early. We retired when I was 38 and he was 41, which was itself a really wonderful thing. But I realized that the discussion, especially here in the states where we live, uh, was very focused in the early retirement kind of realm around extreme frugality, around taking a look at every single expense and cutting things to the bone and people even judging others for some of their expenses. Like you'd see on some of the message boards, like on Reddit, people jumping all over someone because they dared to commute to their job in a car (laughs) instead of riding a bike, for example. And I just thought, you know, like it feels like that's putting the focus in the wrong place. Yes, that could be an unnecessary expense for some people. But really, we should all be deciding for ourselves which expenditures in our lives we value. Yeah,
0: right. but,
1: hmm. but more importantly, like thinking about this whole conversation being one that's purely about money feels like it's just focusing on the wrong thing when really what we're talking about is living lives that we feel really good about, lives in which we get to do some of the things some of the things that we dream of and lives in which we feel like we have a purpose and we feel like we are contributing something to the world that feels really good to us, which a lot of us don't necessarily get from our jobs. So I really wanted to write the book to kind of shift the conversation in that direction and talk about money, of course, because you need money to be able to support a work optional life, but to make it the tool that makes this dream life possible for you. And so that's very much where the book begins is kind of the life visioning part of it. And then we all bring finances in to support that rather than vice versa, rather than making money the thing.
0: Yeah, right. To start with, sort of how you wish to be in life and then go backwards from there with regards to what you do and how you earn money to support that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: A little bit backwards, isn't it? We, we usually go out there and chase money and then and then we buy things and then we, we find ourselves in a state of being that perhaps is good or perhaps is not so good. Most of us, I think, would p- probably say that it's not the way we thought it would be. Um, and then it's hard to do, it's hard to reverse it, you know, because we got there, we got mortgages now, families, you know, all these things to support and work optional. It sounds like a dream more than something that could be a reality for many of us. And when we think about it, even when I think about it right now, it still sounds like a dream. Like, how do we have work optional when we, and and not focus on the money aspect when, you know, I need money to put food on the table for my girls, my family, um, you know, I do like to go on a holiday. I'd love to go out to dinner more often, things like that. You know, that's what we often think mm-hmm. about. And then we become again, focused on the money rather than the actual, the dream or the vision or the purpose.
1: And all of that is absolutely true. I think, you know, my view is not that we're, we're trying not to talk about money because it is ultimately a, a personal finance book. Hmm. It's, it's more changing how we think about money. So Vicki Robin in her wonderful book, Your Money or Your Life really put out the the idea first that money is a representation of your time. It's a representation of the time that you spent earning that money. Yeah. And I sort I sort of take it a step farther in the book and say, you know, so therefore it's both, uh, you know, the transaction of that money has already happened by the time you have the money in your hands and that the money is also the value of the time that you could be buying back with that money. And so it's, it's not about, avoiding money or anything like that, but it's about changing our relationship to it. And Mm. my belief is once you have a vision for your life and you know what your life could be without work or with less work or with work that you do on your own terms, or maybe life that, or work that you do that is aligned to your passions instead of work that maybe makes you feel morally compromised every day, um, that. It becomes much easier to change that relationship to money. You know, I've had the experience. I was never a good saver myself. I'm not naturally frugal, and when people would say, "Oh, you know, you need to be saving at least 10% of your income," I would just kind of go like, "Why?" <laughs> right. Like, I would so much rather spend that money. Uh, and it was because I didn't have a reason. I I didn't have a good reason to change my relationship to money or to how I was spending. And I didn't have a vision for what that money could do for me instead. But once you sort of go through this process that's laid out in the book and you think about, okay, what is it that I want to be spending my days doing? Who do I want to be spending more time with? What are things in my community that I could play a part in fixing? Uh, What is the legacy that I want to leave behind? Once you have that vision, changing your relationship to money really does become so much easier. So, it's easier to say like, okay, maybe this house that we're living in, maybe we actually don't need this big a house. Maybe we could downsize that mortgage or maybe the next raise I get at work, that's great, but maybe we don't need to increase our spending and instead of spending that new money, we could save it. Uh, There are just questions like that that I think become so much easier to answer when you have your vision and kind of your your life plan uh, Mm. in mind.
0: Yeah, you really get, need to get clear on that vision before you sort of start, I guess. And well, maybe not necessarily. I think you can sort of start and, and correct course along the way. But um, it's nice to have that, that vision pretty clear in head. But let's just go back to your story for a second because you retired at 38. Was that right? That's right. Okay. Now, how did you make that possible? Was that planned or was it just a case of your, yourself and Mark said, look, this is it. We've worked hard. We've got some money in the bank now. Let's just retire.
1: Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> we we definitely planned for it. So we had had kind of a vague notion of not wanting to work until 65 for a long time. Uh, We both had very high-stress careers as political consultants. We were working a ton of hours, we were traveling a lot, and we just kind of knew, okay, this is taking a toll on our health and our relationship, and we don't want to do this forever, but we also liked the work. It felt important, and so we weren't eager to switch careers or anything like that. We just said, okay, is there a way we could do this maybe less time than most people do in terms of, of careers? And so about six years before we retired was when we really got serious about it. And at first, that just looked like trying to save a lot more money. We didn't necessarily have a plan in mind. We didn't have an end date in mind. We, we sort of jokingly called it our 10-year plan at that point. And then over the next couple of years, it coalesced into something much more solid. And in the end, that 10-year plan really only took six years to finish. Clip. And we were able to save enough in that time that we'll never need to earn another penny. It's it's not to say we won't ever work again, because I do think humans are wired to want to contribute in some way, yeah. but we don't need to. We don't rely on that money to be able to pay our bills. And here in the US, you know, we have kind of a terrible healthcare uh, situation. We won't rely on on an employer to give us healthcare, things that most people have to do. So mm. uh, we we wake up every day feeling really lucky that we get to say that, but it was for sure the result of years of... Intense planning and focus, although probably fewer years than a lot of folks are able to do because we don't have kids. Uh, we did have well-paying jobs. We didn't have tremendous debt or anything like that. So we had a lot of things working in our favor too.
0: Right. Okay. So you don't have kids currently.
1: No kids. No, kids. no plans.
0: Okay. Well, that, that's that's realistic too, and I'm glad you sort of bring it up because you know that's um, definitely definitely changes things. Um, but there's sure. always ways around it, and I guess. I guess you know, a lot of people probably think that you know that such a plan would be twenty, twenty-five years, maybe in the making, to be able to retire um, based on their lifestyle. I'm sure we can get into the nitty-gritty of how you sort of came about that plan, but um, yeah, to do it in six years, I mean, that's that's pretty cool, and uh, a lot of people would certainly warrant that, or you know, dream about having that sort of lifestyle. What do you classify as retirement? Because you sort of touched on there that it's not about not working at all, but yeah, what is mm-hmm. retirement?
1: Yeah. I mean, retirement itself is such a new concept, historically speaking. We've only been retiring in large numbers for about four generations. So, the idea that retirement is a fixed concept just isn't true. We still are in a place where the meaning of it is evolving. And plenty of people who are over 65 uh, in the U.S. are still working. Some of them because they have to, because they can't afford not to, and others because they enjoy it. Uh, So, to me, I think we put too much stock sometimes in the idea of you're never allowed to work again if you retire. Uh, so that's not what our retirement is. Um, our retirement to us means we never have to work. We certainly hope never to be employed again. Uh, but we're still going to do work. So we both do a lot of volunteer work with organizations in our community. I obviously wrote the book. Uh, so that took work, uh, and I also write my blog, Our Next Life. I do a podcast, The Fair Sense. And those are all things that are projects that I sit down and work on, but they don't feel like work the way that it yeah. did before. Yep. They're, pro- they're projects I choose to do. They're projects where money honestly has no part in it. I don't even monetize the blog at all. Uh, but, you know, whether the book is successful is sort of immaterial to me in a financial sense. I'd like it to be successful for my self-esteem
0: yeah, for
1: for yeah. uh, being able to write more books because publishing is a business and certainly my publisher cares about making money, even if I don't. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting thing to just get to go into projects and totally follow your passion and not worry about like, oh, is this going to be a good use of my time? Is this going to give me a good return on my investment? Is it going to pay me enough? Like those questions are now totally gone from my mind. So the work I do just feels like an incredible privilege.
0: Yeah. Well, that's cool. And, um, you've got a blog, which is called our next, what is it? Our next,
1: our next life.
0: Our next life. That's right. Um, quite successful blog. Did you start that prior to, um, prior to retirement, your retirement?
1: Yes. The blog has been around for about four years. So that was three years just about uh, before we retired. And for most of that time, I was anonymous on the blog because we couldn't risk that our employers could find out (laughs) uh, about our plans. That would have sort of spoiled things. So, yeah, I talked about what we were doing in slightly more vague terms. And then just before we quit our jobs, after we told our employers our plans, then we were able to reveal who we were. And uh, that was about a year and a half ago now.
0: That's cool. So that's part of the the plan, part of the vision.
1: Yeah, it was fun.
0: So tell us about... You know, how you go about creating that vision, obviously, it it seems like the first step for us to go about planning our retirement. Um, How did that happen for you? Was that something that you you and Mark just worked on together and said, okay, well, what what do we want to be like? And you sat down and you sort of visioned it together or was this something that sort of came through, I don't know, just the course of some dissatisfactions in your career or understanding that, you know, you were were burning yourself out by this work and, and it wasn't going to be sustainable longer term?
1: I think it was a little bit of all of that. But the truth is we didn't for ourselves go through some very deliberate process like the one that I've included in the book. For us, we were always very clear jointly on what we valued most. We were spending all of our free time, especially earlier in our careers, going to the mountains. Uh, We were living in Los Angeles at the time. That's a few hours away from the Sierra Nevada mountains, which are just so beautiful. And so we were backpacking every long weekend. We were spending all our vacation time there. In the winters, we were driving up to the mountains almost every weekend to go skiing. So it was very clear to us what our priorities were and what we wanted to be doing with our time. And as we progressed in our careers and we got more promotions, we realized, oh, we're working more and more. We actually can't get away like we used to. And I think everyone can understand, you know, as you get more responsibility, then you also have to be reachable at all times. So we weren't able to do things anymore, like go backpacking where we might be out of cell range for five or six days. That just became impossible. And It was that combined with seeing the toll that our work was taking on our health. I was having more migraines, Mark has an autoimmune disease, he was starting to have more flare-ups. I also uh, have a genetic disability in my family that I knew might start affecting me more, so I had a little bit of a ticking clock kind of hanging over my head. Mm. Uh, we, We had all these things that were sort of telling us like, okay, we can't stay on the same path forever and just let the years keep passing without thinking about this. But it was also for us very much that we had a vision of what we wanted to be doing instead. We wanted to be living in the mountains. We wanted to be doing adventure every chance we could get. And that was becoming a smaller and smaller part of life. So I think for us, we were really lucky in that the life vision was always the guiding part. I hear from a lot of readers and people who I meet Mm. at different different gatherings that I think for a lot of people, the vision does tend to be driven by just, I hate my job or I hate having to go to work every day. And that's natural. I have no criticism for that. But if that's the place that you start, I do think then it becomes really important to do the life vision piece if the life vision part didn't come naturally. Because the other thing that I've heard is from quite a few people, probably well over a hundred at this point, um, over the years of writing the blog of people who planned financially to retire early and then got to the end, quit their job and then realized, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing with myself. I'm super bored. I have no purpose. I feel like no one in the world values my opinion. Wow. And those people, those people ended up going back to work.
0: Do you get a lot which, of that? Uh,
1: I wouldn't say a lot, but enough to enough. know that yeah, it's not lazy. a few outliers. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I wouldn't so, have expected that. Yeah. Well wow.
1: Yeah. And and when I first started getting notes like that, I didn't expect it either. But then I just I kept hearing that same story enough to say, okay, this is this is a real problem for some people. And so that's why to me it's so important not to just think about the numbers, not just the money, and not just the idea of quitting your job, but actually think what is the life you do want to live, not just what is the part of your life now that you want to escape from.
0: Hmm. Yeah, well I, I can only imagine there's a lot of people out there um that sort of look at their life and go, you know, Yes, parts of my work I love, et cetera, et cetera, but it takes up a lot of my time and it really does impact on my health, on on the things I really want to do with my my time. You know, people are working five days a week and 85% of the workforce are unhappy with what they do apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I would have thought there'd be a lot more people that would go, yeah, you know, if I had an extra day a week or an extra five days a week or whatever it might be these are the things that I'd be doing. I'd be hiking, I'd be writing my books, I'd be, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's, it's surprising that there's, yeah, there's people out there that get to that point and they go, huh, what am I doing? Um, mm-hmm. So talk to us about your plan. Like how do? what's your advice on on us um, to figure out our, our visions other than sort of knowing, I guess, you know, that I like to go swimming, I like to write, and I, I'm talking about myself personally. So those mm-hmm. are the things I could do more of certainly uh, if I had more time away from work. Um, how do you, how do you help people tap into their vision?
1: Yeah, I go through in the book, a series of exercises, which are very informed by what I've learned over the years of writing the blog of hearing from people and also a lot of research I did. And I will say also from my career as a consultant, which involved taking clients through a lot of different processes to try to get to kind of the core of an issue. And in the process of that, we think about everything from big picture. Like what is it at the end of your life that you want to be able to look back and say you did Mm -hmm. all the way down to what does an ideal day look like and who is part of your vision? Like you mentioned writing and swimming. I'm sure also spending more time with your daughters is important to you. Um, there are probably places in the world you'd really like to see and not try to squeeze it into a short vacation. Uh, those are, those are all things that, that we think about. And then it's, Then it's figuring out, okay, how do you align your money behind that then, which might be starting with what I call a money mission statement. So putting together the idea of this is what I want my money to do and this is what my money is not for. So the example that I use in the book that I love is really about trying to take the thinking out of it. And I think that we as humans are very short on willpower. We are best at making decisions when we don't have to use a lot of willpower. And so if you're faced constantly with a really tempting purchase decision that you'd like to make, but you know you shouldn't, mm. eventually you're going to give in. So can you create for yourself a mental system in which you don't rely on that willpower? And the example is uh, if you're a vegetarian and someone says to you, hey, would you like a burger? you don't have to stop and think about it. You don't have to exercise any willpower and saying, no, you know, I don't eat burgers.
0: (laughs) And therefore... so you create rules, yeah.
1: Exactly. And it's just like part of your DNA that you've put into your mind and you've changed your mindset around that. So it's looking at ways like that that you can simplify your decision-making to make this stuff as easy as possible uh, so that you can save your willpower for other things in life.
0: So that comes down to... Our money and how we consume our money so that we can not have to depend on it after Mm -hmm. we decide that, hey, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to pursue this course and this path in life instead, which allows me to do the things I love.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And fundamentally, the less that your lifestyle costs, the less you have to save. So it's a virtuous cycle if you can eliminate some expenditures from your life and spend less on certain things like we used to spend a ton of money at restaurants. We used to, we, we still travel and we love travel, but we used to travel in a slightly different way. We'd spend a bit more doing it than we do now. Uh, or I was very guilty of impulse buys at the grocery store, for example. Mm. Uh, and. And so, if you can kind of create a system where you say, okay, I only grocery shop from a list. I don't uh, buy impulse purchases there. Uh, We don't go out to eat more than, let's say, once or twice a month, and that's our limit. You can kind of create these systems so that your life now then costs less, which does two things. It frees up money that you can be saving for the future, and it means that you have to save less because it costs less to sustain your life.
0: be honest, how many times did you go to the shopping center with a uh, shopping list and still buy the stuff that you shouldn't have.
1: I mean, back in the day, all the time. Um, <laughs> now I'm much much better about it, but I, I'll be honest too. I mean, it takes practice. A lot of this stuff is about building the muscle. So I think that's a big part of it too. Is looking at what's realistic and focusing on the progress rather than thinking about okay, I said I wasn't going to buy anything off the list, but I did. I'm bad. Like there's no point in beating yourself. Then you, up then you about give that.
0: up and you, you just yeah. Uh, yeah, it just destroys move you. on,
1: do better next time. <laughs>
0: yeah, look, and I think that's a really important point. And I think that's a really good reason why, when you, when you do set up your behaviours based on your visions and values, uh, that you're more likely going to follow it. And still, it's going to take practice, even though you might value the heck out of it. Like, I really want you know to be able to just write every day, and to do that, I I just can't impulse buy at the shopping centre. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when it's backed by that. That why, I guess, that motivation, you're going to find it easier to to avoid those impulses. But again, over time with with practice and habit, it'll um, it'll definitely sink in. Um, But if you don't have that vision behind it, then yeah, you're just going to go, ah, I don't really want to do that anyway. I'm just going to keep working and uh, I'm going to buy that impulse item.
1: I will say one more trick that really helps beyond just having your vision is to actually track your spending for an extended period. So to track it for at least three months, maybe six months, so that you get a really realistic view of what your life costs. Because the truth is that most people who are not living in a, in a way that's scraping by, most people actually don't know where all their money is going. Yeah. So if you can track everything, get a really clear vision, and then now you know what your life costs. To sustain, you know what a year costs. So you can divide that total number by 365 days in the year, and you now have a cost of a day. And that number is so valuable. And so whether that's $100, $200, whatever it is, the number isn't important uh, to anyone but you, but now you have a value. So it's like, okay, I'd like to buy something that costs that amount. Mm. You can say to yourself, okay, I could buy this thing or i could save that money and that would buy me a day of freedom which is worth more and when you have that very specific number to to judge by i do think it makes it so much easier to to cut out those purchases because you know exactly you know sort of what you're trading
0: yeah yeah absolutely um i think there's there's nothing more important than measuring it and and i'm guilty that i don't always measure things but when you measure things and track things you really know where you are at and, you know, getting started, I think that's a great bit of advice. Look at what you, you know, spend daily over a course of a week, a month or whatever it might be. Um, and then, you know, base, base your plan on that. Okay. This is mm-hmm. realistic. This is where I'm spending it unnecessarily. This is where I could tighten up. Um, cause that's going to give you a really good realistic snapshot on, on how you could, um, you know, not penny pinch, I suppose, not be more frugal, but live within your means to a lifestyle that, is comfortable so you can go out there and do those things that you really want to do
1: yeah I has Marie Kondo and the the tidying up trend made it uh, to you all yet or is that just here in the us I've,
0: I've come across it yeah I don't really know but I, I certainly have come across her name
1: yeah so her whole thing is is with regard to decluttering to focus on the question of does this spark joy and If something sparks joy, you keep it, and if it doesn't, you get rid of it, and not to debate the merits of that, but I do think in many ways the approach that I recommend in the book is similar with regard to your spending, that it's not about trying to pinch pennies. It's not about cutting out things that really do add happiness or value to your life. It's that once you have this vision and once you've looked at, okay, what does a day of freedom cost? what could I be spending this money on instead? It suddenly becomes much easier to eliminate whole categories of things. Like we haven't paid for cable TV in a lot of years. We don't miss it because we know what that costs and what we'd be trading for that. There, are, I think it's less about saying, okay, here are categories you might cut and more about deciding for yourself of what are the things I'm currently spending on that don't spark joy, that mm-hmm. don't make me happier. And if you think about it that way, you can actually find in many cases – whole areas to cut that will not change your quality of life whatsoever and won't make you feel like you're living very frugally, they'll they'll honestly be things you don't miss. But when you aren't thinking about it in that way and we're just kind of going through our busy lives day to day and letting lifestyle inflation happen and letting impulse buys happen, we don't notice that stuff. So it's sort of making the invisible things in our spending visible so that we can say, oh yeah, I don't need that. Goodbye.
0: And bringing your attention to it. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the vision, again, going back to that vision, the the, values and and all that, it brings the purpose, you know, is this use of my time or is this behavior purposeful to that vision? If it's not, then maybe I can get rid of it. And I know when I went to Japan with my family, you know, a few years ago, um, we sold up some things and we all moved over there. We didn't have much with us um, and we were living a different lifestyle with a different level of income, um, but because we were sort of aligned with what we really wanted to do, which was, you know, just enjoy the cultural experience and travel and, and you know, enjoy the culture that we were there for, we we became more purposeful in what we were doing. And, and we did. We eliminated a lot of those things that we used to spend our time on or spend our money on unnecessarily. And it actually raised our happiness um, in the longer run.
1: Oh, I love that. I lo- oh, and I love Japan. I'm so glad you got to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was really, we sort of were forced into a minimalist lifestyle um, mm-hmm. only because we became more focused on this is what we wanted to do. So, okay, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to just jump in there and do this. And these are the things that we don't need um, to, to allow us to do that. And yeah, I mean, you know, at, at the start, it was a little bit tight. Things were a little bit harder. Um, but once we got into the momentum of it all, um, it was it was joyful. It was really great. It was yeah, unbelievable, actually. Um, and I certainly think when I was there, I was just looking at it and going, you know, I have this dream and this vision of how I see myself in the future of being able to sit in a property that I perhaps own, um, which is private, that overlooks some water or some beautiful nature, that um, has a wooden desk in an office where I can sit out there and write and look out my window. Um, and whilst I didn't have that in Japan, I still was sitting there writing at a desk, Looking out the window in a different country, and I thought, you know, it's it's not quite the dream, but it's close, you know, to that. Um, and that's that's really what I wanted is the, the ability to be able to do that with my time, which was writing. All the other stuff around it wasn't as necessary to the overall goal, which was happiness.
1: Mm. I I love I loved hearing you tell that story and just hearing how much joy and passion came out as you were telling it. That's I think. You definitely had a work optional kind of life experience there. That's so great.
0: Yeah, well look, it was it was good. <laughs> and um it's still it's still the goal. But we've just moved back to Australia now, so we're still figuring things out. But um I I love it and I that's why I like to, to get you on the show because I, I really do believe that people should be able to have this option. I think more and more people are, are coming attuned to this idea of um yeah, not so much i don 't sort of think early retirement, I just think doing stuff with your time that matters to you rather than spending all your time uh, exchanging your time for money basically that doesn 't mm-hmm. allow you to actually do the stuff that you want to do anyway
1: well and it 's no wonder that people are coming around to it because we 're at this point in the global economy and in history when things are really coming to a head when mm many, many people are working at a pace that's unsustainable, especially here in the States. I I just don't know the stats for Australia, but uh, for the States, it's uh, almost two thirds of salaried workers who work more than 60 hours a week. And Americans are really bad about taking all their vacation time or their holiday time. And we just have people working themselves to death. You know, like in Japan where you spent time, that is a known thing of people dying at work. And the promise had been when we switched to this modernized more global economy was going to was supposed to be that we were all supposed to get to work less that we would keep earning at a comfortable level but that it would require less and less of our time and that promise has just never come true. In fact, we're working more than ever, not less than ever. And starting in the late 70s, early 80s, we see that corporate profits continue to go up, but worker compensation stayed level. Mm. And in very real terms, most people have not seen a raise in many, many years if you adjust for inflation. And so, all of those gains are going to the shareholders and to the executives. And so no wonder people are saying, why am I doing all of this? Why am I working so much and so hard for so little and I'm giving up all my free time, all the other things I want to accomplish in life outside of work? I mean, to me, that's why you see so many different movements overlapping. If you see some people wanting to early retire, others becoming minimalists, people moving into tiny houses and things like that. I mean, it's, it's sort of this moment of reckoning of going like, okay, our, our economic system is not working for most people. How can we opt out of it and create something new?
0: Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly fragmentation of the markets as well. You know, people doing their own thing on a smaller scale, serving a smaller niche, um, but uh, earning enough to live their their sort of lifestyle that they want to live, and, and people supporting each other in that realm as well, and I think that's a a great thing that's going to go forward. I I sort of feel that, um, you know, part of it or most of it even is is a lack of well is our ignorance into what we're doing, you know, because we are guilty of going out there and working forty, fifty, sixty, whatever it is hours a week, and coming home at the end of the day and going, oh, geez, this is really suckful, you know, blah blah blah. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, we look at it, we are like the houses, I'm in real estate, i mean the houses that people are desirable of and want to buy and live in, you know, bathrooms in each bedroom is bloody a joke. (laughs) And, um, you know, media rooms and TVs in each room and all this rubbish, like it's just so unnecessary. And look, for some people, if you love that, and you want it, for sure, go ahead and do it, you know, have that sort of dream house. But I just think you look at it and go, you know it's more cleaning it's more time i have to walk it's a bigger mortgage it takes up more of um, my time so i can't do the stuff that i love what is it all for you know it's our own ignorance that is causing our suffering and i think if we can and people are waking up to it then we can start you know following your movement and going okay well how can i do this differently to allow myself to do the things i love
1: Oh, gosh, I could not agree with, more with all of that. And so much of it is just that that's what we've been taught. We've been taught for generations now that the way to be a proper citizen is to be a consumer and that we, in fact, are consumers. That is our identity. We are here yep. to consume and once you reach the ability to move to a bigger house, we're told that that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get a new car every few years. If you can sort of take a step back and realize, okay, I know that that's what everybody else does, but is that actually making me happier or would holding onto the same car for 10 or 20 years be just fine? If you know in your heart that you could be okay with that and that you don't need a bigger house, you don't need more stuff, you don't need the latest iPhone, it's amazing how much money you can save instead. And then with that money, buy your freedom. I mean, it really is, like you said, just a totally different way of thinking, but a lot of that requires unlearning everything we've ever been taught.
0: Yeah. But what, why, do, why do we still do it? Like we go out there and go, I need a new car. Like I couldn't, I love the idea of driving a comfortable car. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I've actually got a Tesla here in front of me. I just, I dig it, but I'd never buy a new car like full stop. I mean, that's a, that's a big expense. I'd rather buy a second hand car, but Yeah, people still go out there, and we go. I don't know. We get to this point where we go. I'm gonna. I just have to buy that because it's gonna raise my level of happiness. But it doesn't
1: do anything. But we don't realize that, and and our brains are actually wired so we get a dopamine rush when we buy something. Mm. And psychologists call this phenomenon the hedonic treadmill. The idea that we keep running. But running in place, that's the treadmill idea of trying to chase the next thing because we do get that momentary high or that high that might last a little while when we buy something. And we Mm -hmm. just don't think about, okay, well, yeah, I bought this thing, it made me feel really good, so I want to get that feeling again, rather than looking at overall, uh, am I actually happier? And we know from research that we aren't, that we all tend to adjust back to a similar baseline of happiness, regardless of what good or bad things happen to us. And so the idea of using purchases and spending to make us happier, it makes sense because our brains like that purchase moment, but it doesn't make sense because... It doesn't actually affect our long-term happiness. So that's where sort of being aware of that and mm. understanding of like, okay, it might feel really good to buy this thing, but then that good feeling is going to wear off. And now I'm more poor for having spent the money. And I probably have this thing that now I'm going to have to declutter at some point. Uh, kind of waking up to that, I think is just very powerful on its own.
0: It's part to do with the ego as well, isn't it? Like the the idea of status, like we, we think we need the new car, the house, et cetera, to you look good in our, our colleagues or peers eyes and and you know have that high level of status or respect in the community
1: absolutely that is a very real phenomenon there was a great book written in the US uh, about 20 years ago 20 years ago called the millionaire next door and they did a study of millionaires, people who had a net worth of a million dollars or more, and looked at their habits and they observed some really interesting things which go exactly to what you're talking about. So they said that the people who were least likely to accumulate wealth were those whose jobs came with some kind of prestige. So doctors, lawyers, professions like that, where they felt like they had to project a certain image. If, if you're a surgeon and you pull up to the hospital in a 20-year-old uh, economy sedan, people might go, is that guy really a very good surgeon, (laughs) Hmm. whereas if you pull up in a brand new luxury car, they go, oh, he must be doing really well. He must be good at his job. I think it was pretty similar with lawyers and and things like they felt obliged to join the country club and, and spend money on certain things. Whereas people in lower status jobs, someone who owned a plumbing business or someone who owned a dry cleaning business or construction uh, where no one has any kind of expectation of status or that you're going to project a certain image, those folks didn't have that pressure didn't feel the need to keep up with anyone and are more likely also to live in very middle class neighborhoods where you're not seeing a lot of wealth on display and they could then save that money. So it's pretty interesting that yes, absolutely. I think that the status stuff, the ego for sure plays into it. And so part of learning to save is putting that stuff aside, saying, you know, I'm just not going to worry what people think about me. I am going to focus on what enough means for me and my family and aim toward that instead mm-hmm. of aiming toward projecting something.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. I think we, you know, again, need to go back to our vision, what's important to us and forget what the hell everyone else thinks of us. And forget about you know comparing ourselves to everyone else. Just focus on what you want to do, and really become clear on that. And then, yeah, creating your, your lifestyle around that. Really, really, really good points. How did you? How did you save for your retirement?
1: Uh, Mark and I really focused on a couple of different things that all were based around the idea of automating. So, I talked earlier about willpower mm. and how we have such a limited store of that. We know that from research. Um, so, for us, we just said, you know, we in particular are low on willpower <laughs> we We are good at making bad decisions if they are tempting in the moment. So what we need to do is just take the temptation out of it. So we did as much as we could to just make the money decisions invisible. So we had our paychecks split so that a big chunk of them went directly into savings or directly into investments. And then, of course, some of it went into our employer retirement accounts uh, so that We didn't have to do anything month to month. We didn't have to say, okay, let's be sure to set aside X amount and transfer it. Our goal was just to live on what was left in our checking account Mm -hmm. and then let everything else happen invisibly. So really then our only job was just don't oversend and let time pass. And then each each year when we got a raise, we increased the amounts that went automatically into savings and investments so that we kept the amount that we lived on steady for just about the last 10 years of our career. Meanwhile, we worked really hard at work. We focused on trying to earn as much as we could and get promoted, which we did. And so our earnings went up steadily. So that meant that each year we were able to save much more than we had the prior year. And that's really the whole secret to our success was focus just on a earning more. amazing,
0: work. inspiring story, huh?
1: Oh, I mean, to, it's so funny because people will say, oh, tell me, tell me your story. I'm like, it's really very boring. <laughs>
0: yeah, but <laughs> because, it, it's just, it's incredible that you guys, you know, did this for so long. You planned it clearly at an earlier age by the sounds of it and then you you just worked at it and you I I guess you lived on what you had and you put everything else away so you could get to that point where you could retire and that's I mean everything takes a long time yeah it's always at the long game and and people don't always see that they just look at your story and probably go oh she's retired now how did she do that oh lucky duck you know Mm -hmm. um but you guys I'm assuming you had a lot of well did you feel you had a a lot of sacrifices throughout that period?
1: we really didn't because our goal was not to try to cut every expense down to the bone there were some things we cut when we realized okay this is not giving us the value that that we'd like out of that money but by and large all that we really did was try to keep our spending level just not let it inflate year to year so we didn't let ourselves add new expenditures that kind of sneak in invisibly and and that's the opposite
0: I, normally happens with people, don't they? Like you get an a income a promotion or a raise or whatever, and then you spend more. People spend more based on their earnings.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so that's very normal. And that's what pretty much everybody around us was doing, where we just kept it level. We felt very comfortable. We weren't living at a super frugal level. Uh, we were living at a level that felt totally good to us. It's just we said we're not going to let it inflate. And that was really the only decision we had to make. That's but, cool. Hmm. Yeah. But again, it just happened automatically in the background because we created those systems. And, you know, when we got a raise each year, we set, we just went into our accounts and changed the automatic amounts that came out. But we only did that one time. So it was once a year we'd go in and change some things and then it just sort of happened in the background. So that's why I say it was very boring that because it didn't feel like day to day we were consciously saving money. We were just living life. And then this was all kind of happening in the background.
0: Yeah. 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 There's there's some really good points to take away from that. I think, you know, just knowing that it's the long-term, it's a, it's a long-term mm-hmm. thing. It's not a short-term thing is really important. Um, and that's probably the biggest part of it because a lot of us are, are driven by, um, you know, immediate satisfaction rather than longer-term um, satisfaction. So that's a really good takeaway. And then keeping things simple too, like putting it on automation, I think is great. How did you, like, did you guys just look at your your six month sort of budget or you know expenses and go okay well that's that's what we need to to live this sort of life that we want to live currently and we can do that for ten years quite comfortably on that sort of um, money is that how you came up with with what you needed and then the rest was just put away
1: it, it, to be honest when we started it was a bit of trial and error so yeah. we had had been funneling some money off to the side for a while to do things like buy our first place, which the first place we bought was in LA, which is really expensive. And so we had already gotten in a habit of kind of saving money that way. And then when we got serious about this and said, okay, we'd like to save more, we did what we called looking for our pain point. So we said, okay, this month we've got this amount going. We're going to see how that feels. Oh, that felt okay. Great. Let's increase it. So then we would take $200 more out the next month. And we hmm. kept doing that until we got to a point where it went, we said, okay, this is too much. We, we now feel like we're, we're having to really focus on money in a way we'd rather not do. We're not getting to to live comfortably. And then we dialed it back just enough. And so I think that can be a good way to find it. That That's really if, cool.
0: Yeah. I like that
1: yeah, if you're not wanting to do, you know, a big calculation and look at it, just sort of take a little bit of money away each month until you get to a point where you go, okay, now I really feel the pinch. It's sort of like tightening the belt one, one notch at a time instead of going from all the way out to all the way in.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So cool. I want to um, leave it there and just encourage the audience to pick up your book. Um, I'm sure there's heaps of people that are listening to this podcast that are just going, yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, cause I know a lot of people want that. They want to just be able to do what they love and, um, I'm sure they can get some value out of your journey and, and the, the words you've written in your book. So thank you for sharing Tanya. I uh, appreciate it. I've got some questions that I want to ask you now quickly that I ask all guests. Is that all right? Absolutely. I want to know what your one routine or ritual is that you believe contributes to your success.
1: It's it's so funny. I think that the routine is trying to remove the need for routines. <laughs> no. So the the automating our savings is really the best example of that, but I I am definitely by nature a pretty lazy person and I know that it doesn't sound that way because I get a lot of things done and was able to retire early, but so much of that was just trying it's it's trying to find those little hacks that make things more automatic or make them mindless. Uh, that is just the routine of how I try to approach as many things as possible.
0: It's interesting that you say you're lazy because it's um something I sort of relate to as well, but I think it's just yeah, making the best use of your time and not doing shit that's unnecessary. That's not so mm-hmm. much being lazy. That's cool. I like that. What What do you define as success?
1: Uh, success to me, it's taken me a long time to get to this defini- definition because I would des- was definitely an achiever. Uh, yep all the way through school and my career. But I really believe now that success is having control of my own time and not spending my time in ways that other people tell me to, but in ways that I get to. So I pretty much feel like, uh, I'm living the dream life at this point.
0: That's cool. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Ah,
1: oh, don't spend so much money on stuff you don't need <laughs> uh, or stuff that's to project an image. You know, the, the advice is given so often to young people of dress not for the job you have, but for the job you want. And I absolutely understand the wisdom behind that advice, but I also think it leads a lot of people to buy clothes and shoes and things that they don't really need uh, to try to project that image. And it it indoctrinates us into that keeping up with the Joneses idea. And I Mm. fell victim to that in a big way. So I'd go smack that out of my 20 year old self.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. I think you see a lot, a lot more people in this space doing that, just being authentic in in their in their realm and, and going out there with that. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a productivity tool, resource or technique that, um, has helped you with your overall effectiveness?
1: Yes. Uh, the best thing that I have done for my productivity and I would call mental productivity too, is actually going offline. So for years in my career, my entire calendar was on online, of course, uh, because many people needed to be able to access it and schedule things. And I kept my to-do lists and various apps. And I really realized when I was able to quit that, you know, that stressed me out that not having a visual picture of everything was making me feel anxious, like I was missing something. And so in the last year, I've transitioned everything back to a paper planner, paper to-do list. I have none of that stuff on the computer anymore. And it is so much better. I still Mm -hmm. am a digital user. I use email, I use social media. I'm not anti-technology, but for things that involve me having to do something, I just, I feel so much more calm having it all laid out on paper.
0: Yeah. I like that there's so many benefits that come by trying to limit the online world in your life. Mm-hmm. If you were to be served your last meal, what would you request?
1: <laughs> so I have a uh, celiac disease, which is a, a serious gluten intolerance. So mm-hmm. uh, many people I know who have food allergies or have something like our, our deathbed meal list is quite long because we think about all the things we're not allowed to eat. So it's so unhealthy. It's like I would like a slice of New York pizza and I would like a Boston cream donut and cinnamon toast crunch cereal. (laughs) It's like the worst junk food, but it's stuff that I haven't been able to eat in seven or eight years. So it would be that stuff all the way.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. It's your last day. That's all right. Yeah. What activity gives you the greatest sense of joy?
1: Uh, I think writing, uh, Hemingway had, he is always credited with this quote, but uh, I don't know that he actually said it, but regardless, we'll, we'll carry on. Uh, The quote is, I hate writing, but I love having written. And I think for a long time while I was working, I felt that way. Like I liked having a finished product, but I hated the process. And I think in the last year and through writing the book, I really got to a place of total joy in just the process itself. And so that's really uh, been a wonderful transformation for me and something that I view as a direct gift of being able to retire early.
0: Yeah, cool. That's so true too. And you hear that a lot from people that write you know, mm-hmm. the pain of the process, but, um, yeah, there's, well, I don't know if it's pain of the process. There's joy in the process, I, but pain in the moment of the process.
1: I think there can be pain in the process, <laughs> so I don't want to uh, invalidate that for anyone, but I think I've, I've managed to get to a place where I could find the joy also. So sometimes it might be painful and joyous all at the same time.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Something to reflect on. What is a book that you would recommend? One book you'd recommend for our listeners to have a listen to or maybe pass down to future generations?
1: Uh, One of my favorite books is uh, the book, My Life in France by Julia Child. Julia Child was an American cooking icon in the fifties and sixties and onward until uh, the end of her life, uh, right around the turn of the millennium. And she is someone who is a real hero of mine because she didn't actually learn to cook until she was over 40 years old and then went on to become, at the time, the most famous cook in the world, really. Yeah. And it to me is such a reminder that you don't have to have all the answers at an early age. You don't have to know what you're going to do with your life or know what your purpose is from right out of university. Uh, You can figure that out later as you go along through life. And in addition to that, the book is just such a delightful read. She was such an effervescent, uh, happy person. And that really just jumps off the pages. So My Life in France, I love that book so much.
0: That's cool. We'll stick it in the show notes as well as yours, Tanya. So Guys, check it out, thehiddenwhy.com episode 742. Uh, please use the Amazon links there to support the show. Tanya, do you have a quote or message that you would text or tweet to everyone in the world?
1: <laughs> I know you warned me that this question was coming and um, I, I didn't come up with anything brilliant. So I'm just going to share uh, the quote that I think of as my favorite The French writer and poet, Colette, uh, is an inspiration to me, but she has a great quote that was, oh, what a wonderful life I've lived, if only I'd known it sooner. Hmm. I think there's just something nice in that of of it's so easy to get caught up in the stuff that we're frustrated by or the little annoyances day to day instead of taking a step back and going like, oh my goodness, look at all the wonderful stuff in my life. And so uh, her quote to me is a reminder to appreciate that stuff every day.
0: It's a nice one and it sort of it aligns well with our conversation today as well, I think. You know, yeah. becoming a bit more aware about your lifestyle and, and as you become more aware, you can, yeah, enjoy those things that are already there uh, to a higher level. Hmm. I like it. Do you believe we all have a hidden why?
1: The idea of a hidden why to me suggests that something is there kind of predetermined hmm. And I, I don't know that I, I think that, but I do think that we all have the ability to find a why or find yeah. our purpose. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think that living a purpose-filled life is the greatest mission that any of us can aim for. And it's the greatest privilege if you're able to do that. So yes, absolutely.
0: Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. What do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do?
1: I wish I knew the one thing. I mean, there are days when I just really want to go out and have fun. And, you know, if it's snowing and there's powder skiing to be had, uh, that feels like pretty much the strongest motivation in that moment. But, you know, I think that in a bigger picture sense, uh, in, in the Harry Potter universe, I, I get sorted as a Gryffindor, um, as <laughs> someone who's fighting for what's right. I mean, ultimately I think that so much of, of what I care most about and what I aim to do is really just trying to create opportunity for people so that everyone has as close to an equal shot at happiness and prosperity as possible. Uh, we live in a world where that's, that's not always possible here in the U S in particular. Uh, there are a lot of challenges to that, but I sure try my best to share what I know and to fight for people who maybe can't fight for themselves.
0: That's wonderful. It's really cool. I love it. Tanya, Hester, thank you for coming on the show and sharing. Uh, work optional, guys. Check it out. The book's online there. Um, so pick up a copy and have a read and uh, be inspired by that story and um, reconnect to your dreams and your visions and make it happen. Tanya, any, any final words? How can people best reach you?
1: Uh, you can find me at my blog, ournextlife.com. And from there, you can link to social, to the podcast, to the book. Uh, I'm all over the internet, but you can find it all at Our Next Life.
0: That's cool. Guys, check it all out. Again, thehiddenwhy.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon